61 District 6, stage 1 shooting. Skimmer Wayne, near Lakeland, Charles, 478 Tango. 378-1654. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Sevalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. You know, it's great to be at the end of a Labor Day week and only four days we had to work, but because it's Friday... We know that it's time to go inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Subalero, and, you know, it's been a good week. And, uh, you know, I look forward to this every single week where I get to talk to my good friend. Here he is, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm great, man. It's it's heartwarming to know that you, you look forward the entire week to, to hearing from me. You know, it's like hanging out with the boys, you know. It's like getting together for a beer. I don't know if you're drinking, but certainly I am. And well, I, am, uh, I am every podcast, man. That's, that's how I right. remain loose. That's awesome. And, you know, we get some great content out of you because of it. And we may have to up that a couple, maybe a couple shots every time we do a, uh, you know, make a mistake or something. Tequila. Boom. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I don't think we'd finish. Any Come podcast. on. That would work out well. <laughs> that would make for a great blooper episode for sure. Yeah, it sure would. So, you know, Kelly, uh, you know, we, we do, you know, th- we kind of follow the same show and, you know, we've got a good format and, you know, as things pop up, we go ahead and, you know, we kind of change the structure of how we do the shows a little bit. And mm-hmm. you and I did a show a couple weeks back about the 70 minute response time that uh, Charlotte was going through. And we mm-hmm. kind of talked about the, you know, uh, delivering patient care and what's the best way to do it. And, you know, we kind of yeah. went back and forth on it. We got a lot of great responses from the listeners out there. Well, you know, our good friend Bob Sullivan kind of contacted us to say, you know, I think we can kind of work out, uh, I have some questions for you guys. I think we can work out some clinical scenarios of how they would work. And let me go ahead and give it to you and let's get Bob in here because he's here to join us. We'll see what he has yeah. to say. Bob, uh, for those of you guys who don't know Bob, it's Bob Sullivan, writes a column for EMS One, a blog called uh, EMS from the Patient Perspective. Uh, Bob, th- welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. So, having having listened to our, our podcast on Charlotte's uh, Target 70-minute time on task, what did, what did you think? What did, um, uh, you think 70 minutes time on task is a reasonable goal, and, and if so, should they should we be in... Uh, should they be incentivizing that sa- that sort of thing or, or punishing people who don't make the time on task? Well, my uh, thinking about that was sometimes, most of the time, yeah, 70 minutes is fine. Uh-huh. But you've pointed out, both of you in previous shows, about how some of the best community paramedics, some of the, the true patient advocates, will take the extra time to get someone's pain under control before moving them, to let their dog out, to uh-huh. take their trash cans back, other things that you know, might take more time on scene that you're actually incentivizing against, whether they, I'm sure they didn't mean to do that. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and on the other hand, you talk about the, the coworkers who drag their feet and make sure that they're always in the back of the, the line for responses. I think those people are just going to find a way around it. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, yeah. there's not a policy that's an attitude problem that a, a policy isn't going to be able to fix. You know, and I think that you're right, and I think that when we talk about 70-minute total task time, 60-minute total task time, we're really talking about the emergency call. We're not talking about the new day and age of moving into community paramedicine, because all bets are going to be void when it comes to that, and uh, you're going to actually start to see those longer times. But, Bob, you came to us with some scenarios that you're going to kind of, uh, you know, pose to Kelly and I, and uh, why don't you go ahead and let's get those going and see if uh, what type of clinical, what type of clinicians we are. Okay, um, so we'll say someone breaks their hip in an upstairs bathroom, 
and the house is cluttered, how long is it okay to try to get their pain under control before moving them down the stairs and bouncing down into the ambulance uh, before transporting? And that's that's a scene where uh, any kind of isolated extremity fracture where there isn't hemodynamic compromise, I think I would actually incentivize spending more time on scene to get mm-hmm. the pain under control before moving. Well, and and I, I tend to agree. I, I also have the luxury of working in a system where they don't... Uh, they don't track or, or um, they track, but they don't incentivize um, low, shorter scene times for our status three and our status four patients. And those, those types of patients, the, the one you described would be a, a status three patient in our system. Hemodynamically unstable, uh, but, but a simple fall possibly with a hip fracture um, would be a status three, uh, status three patient. And, and, they would like us to to be on scene in le- uh, for less than ten minutes. Um, however, that sort of thing is not a there. There's no incentive uh, or disincentive to uh, to uh, that time frame. Me, I would take as long as it takes. Um, you're talking about a patient. You have to get down a a, a flight of stairs, uh, either by a stair chair or or uh, strapping them to a board and, and carrying them downstairs. Um, uh, I would go ahead and start my IV and the, and the requisite vital signs and cardiac monitoring and everything and give them enough fentanyl and possibly even sedation to, to get them as relaxed and as pain-free as possible. Because you know, you know the moment you get them off the floor and start twisting and bending and bumping downstairs and such that, that their pain level is going to spike. Uh, it makes for a much easier patient to package if they're calm and, uh, and relatively pain-free because um, you know you're probably going to have to redose once you get in the rig. Yeah, and I think that you know, uh, along with that too, you start bumping those patients down them stairs. You're going to have physiological effects on the blood pressure, physiological uh-huh. effects on the heart. So it's not just really dealing with somebody's pain and, and making them comfortable, you know, as much as it is going to be to think about those, those other physiological factors. Now, a couple points I want to make. So obviously, I, I agree with you, Kelly, that we really need to spend time on scene and making the patient as comfortable as possible. But here's something that I want to bring up to you. When we talk about the 60-minute response time, the 70-minute response time, these are all averages. And, mm-hmm. you know, so where do you fall in the average of all these calls over a period of, what, a year, six months, eight months? So there are going to be times where we're going to have to work a, p- a cardiac arrest. Yeah. There's going to be times, total task time, longer than 70 minutes. But there's going to be times like these where we're going to wind up spending more than 10 minutes in somebody's home because we're going to have to take time and make them comfortable. I'm, I'm with Kelly as well. Being in the bathroom of somebody that's fallen in the shower and broken their hip, uh, trying to get them comfortable before you do any manipulation of that patient. Are they stuck between the toilet? Are they in the tub? Are they on the sitting on the commode? Or are they laying on the floor reeling in pain? Before we even think about a scoop stretcher, because we're not going to get, maybe we're not even going to get that in there. We might have to get a sheet in there to lift them up and carry them out. Or a Man, ked. Or a, a ked's another great one. We've got to go ahead and we've got to make sure that that person is almost out, as out as they can be. Because uh, having a broken bone before, there is nothing fun about that. And uh, I agree with you 100%. Uh, we need to take as much time as we need to do to make sure that patient is stable, to make sure they're not going to feel the discomfort that they're going to feel, and, uh, you know, just take take some time to do it. You know, and I, I think it's worth noting that that um, you, our we're 
field crews and and our our dispatch center are in kind of we're we're at odds to a certain degree. We shouldn't have to be, but but that's just the nature of the business. Their job is to is to make sure there are units available in the system uh, and, and available for calls. So the quicker they can turn us, uh, the better. And and that's doing their job. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, um, uh, it's not. Uh, Speed is not uh, Im- that important to us in the clinical setting, so you know we're we're kind of at at odds there. Um, and my advice would be is is when you're in that situation, don't take it personally that the that the pager keeps going off reminding you your own scene for X number of minutes, uh, like ours does. I just have learned to ignore it. Uh, it's not that I ignore it and t- totally put it out of my mind, um, but I don't let it harsh my mellow when I'm working on a patient. Go ahead, Bob. What do you got next? Okay. Uh- so we'll take a chest pain patient, and this is some, uh, when we send students out to the field, uh, one of the things I, I tell them is, uh, all right, talk to your preceptors about their philosophy about this, how much, what they want done in the house uh, for common conditions like, like chest pain, we'll say. Uh, do you want an IV in the house? Do you want a dose of nitro in the house before moving, or should you get them to the truck? I, I, I sort of have my biases about that, mm-hmm. but um, it's, it's not shared, and... Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering if there was some kind of consensus about it, an acceptable amount of time just to spend, uh, or some interventions in the house. Even some of the things written in the journals disagree. They want everything yeah. done yeah. in the house before moving, you know, to get the patient comfortable, <laughs> getting them into the ambulance quickly and getting them to the hospital uh, sooner. You want to you wanna take that one first, Chris? Or you want yeah, me I'm going to jump on that. So, and, and the way I'm answering is I'm answering. Now, we, we come from two different sides, Kelly. I, I mentioned to you during that 70-minute show that I was a paramedic that had a quick turnaround time, a quick test time. So I, I think we, we come from two different approaches. So I'm, I'm, I'm giving you my answers, Bob, as if I was on the, running the call. So if I, if I re- came on scene and I saw somebody who was in obvious distress, Levine sign, um, they're sweaty, um, they're pale, um, you know, they're complaining of chest pain. That's somebody that needs to get to the hospital. I need to get a hospital fast. We got to open them up as quickly as practical. Now, if the patient is to a place where I can get them on a stretcher and get them out to the ambulance, I am going to start to do that as quickly as practical and probably move them to the ambulance and do everything in route to the hospital. Now, it's going to depend, though, on, uh, I'm going to ask just a few questions. You know, how do you feel right now? Um, what's your, you have a history of present illness because if it's something that's uh, been precipitating, majority of the time the people that we're seeing with chest pain is first or second time heart attack because uh, usually anybody that's going for a second or third time, they've probably taken themselves to the hospital so they know what's coming. And uh, if I can get them out to the ambulance and something that's going to be relatively quickly, and when I say quickly, if I can get them going within a uh, three-minute period to the ambulance, I may forego doing anything in the house. Now, if it's something that's going to be a little bit longer, I've got stairs, I've got floors, I've got the ambulance on the other side of the, of the uh, buildings, I may spend a little bit more time, I may start an IV, I'll get some nitro on board, but still, what they need is not me in their house, they need to be uh, in a cath lab getting that, that uh, artery open. Well, and, and yes, my approach is, is a good deal different. Um, I, I approach these types of calls, uh, medical calls, uh, and, and what I do on scene uh, from the perspective of, okay, this is, this is what I do to get me back to the truck, and this is what I do in the truck on the way to the hospital. 
and, and time-wise, I don't think that it's that big a difference. One of the one of the big things we do at, at our agency is is um, to uh, the philosophy we have in in assessing our patients, uh, especially medical patients, is, is we. Uh, we tell our medics to uh, to treat your stretcher like the exam table. Okay, so when you bring the stretcher in to as close as possible to the patient's side, uh, they say, "Okay, why don't you hop here up here on the bed, and and we'll we'll start assessing you and, and checking you out." And that actually, you know, uh, at least they the intent is to move the patient toward the truck a, a little faster. Um, but they they tell us to use that that stretcher as our exam table. Now me, I'm not going to I'm not going to uh, get the patient to the rig as quickly as possible, uh, or as quickly as, as you would. Um, with with the patient that Bob describes, uh, my target would be to get a uh, start getting a history as soon as I make patient contact and get a set of vitals and a 12 lead EKG within two to three minutes of patient contact, and that is something that my partner is doing. Um, they're getting a full set of vital signs, listening to lung sounds, uh, acquiring that 12 lead EKG while I'm obtaining a history. And, and once that, once that uh, strip is, is rolling off the monitor, they're gathering uh, medications and, and all the patient's demographic stuff and anything they need to bring to the hospital with them. Uh, but as far as treatment I would render, uh, the patient will get oxygen if they need it. Um, they will get before uh, they will get the 12 lead before their first nitro. Um, I'm, I don't want to uh, give nitro before I'm uh, uh, and, and possibly alter initial 12 lead findings uh, with that dose of nitro. So I'll get the, uh, the 12 lead first and then at least one dose of nitro in their aspirin. And then en route to the hospital, uh, they'll get their vascular access, additional nitroglycerin, uh, and any uh, uh, narcotic analgesics that are necessary and, and further history. Uh, but I would do the same thing with uh, with respiratory patients. You know, give them some oxygen, give them a a neb treatment, and anything else that, that needs to go beyond that uh, gets done uh, on the way to the hospital. The only two caveats that I have to that is about the only time I'm you're going to catch me starting an IV in someone's home uh, is if it is a seizure patient, status epilepticus, uh, still actively seizing when I arrive there, or if it is a diabetic patient that needs D50. Uh, and I'll go ahead and, and treat those uh, and, and get those critical interventions done uh, almost before anything else. And mainly because I don't like carrying people to the ambulance. <laughs> if, I can, if I can get a big person uh, awake and uh, able to sit on the stretcher rather than me carry them to it, that's, uh, that's much better on my back and the patient. So um, uh, laziness in that regard, I guess. So I, I agree, and, and I, I teach that most patients like – you find them somewhere between a bus stop and the top floor of a, a skyscraper. And the closer you are to the trucks, the, the quicker you're going to get them into the ambulance. And the further away, the, the more you may uh, camp out a little bit and do some more. Um, and I, I, I agree. I think aspirin, I like having them chew that up because they can do that. Um, that's, that's quick to administer. Yeah, those are things you could do when you're walking to the ambulance. Right. And I, <laughs> Spoke, uh, spoken like an administrator. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean that's the way. I mean that's the way I handle it. You know, I now I would put I put them on oxygen. I'd give them their aspirin and we'd start going. You know, and and uh, and the same things. I may even as I'm walking, I may be putting a, a four lead on them. Um, 
now, it, it, you know, going back to the scenario, if you know that this is somebody that's having, and we've seen those people, Kelly, we know um, mm-hmm. when people are having diabetic emergencies with our experience, we know when people are having respiratory, without even putting a, you know, a hand on them, you can know those things. If, mm-hmm. if this is something that, a subtle thing, where a patient is uh, uh, maybe having a heart attack, but they don't know, maybe it's a female who's 50 years old, who's overweight with diabetes, and she's having mm-hmm. abdominal pain. Um, those symptoms are going to take you down that heart attack route again. Maybe we sit there a little bit longer and we, uh, you know, make the determination, is it something that is cardiac in nature? And we put the monitor on that patient because it may be something they're calling you that they don't really want to go to the hospital. They just want to make sure they're not dying. Well, we don't well, know that I'm, until we have to figure that out. But if true. there's a patient that's got to get a, get a moving, again, what they don't need is me sitting in their house with them they need to be in front of a uh, cardiologist. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And and you pointed it out just now that when you have those patients, uh, a seasoned medic will know that from the moment they walk in, take a look at the patient and speak their first word. Uh, you've got that. Okay, this is this is not something we need to, to uh, mess around with. It's time to expedite things and go. Um, but there is another reason that I, uh, I, I like to do a good bit of, of stuff on scene. Um, uh, two reasons, actually. Number one, history doesn't always come from the patient. And, and you know as well as I do that quite a few patients themselves are very poor historians and it's hard, hard to get the entire story uh, and, and the relevant information from the patient. Um, and, you know, I, I can't invite family members in the back of my rig and get that information. Uh, so I may be processing history information from multiple sources uh, at the same time trying to figure out what's going on with the patient. Uh, the other thing is, and it's probably a holdover from days when our, our cardiac monitors were less sophisticated than they are now, is uh, the closer I am to that ambulance, and, and if I'm in that ambulance moving, um, my EKG tracings suck. <laughs> they don't suck as bad as they used to, and they're probably usable, but I'll get the best quality 12-lead EKG sitting on Grandpa's couch uh, uh, with a nice, uh, on, on nice couch cushions and sitting still rather than I would be in, in the back of an ambulance, even sitting still if it's idling. Um, so I, I get better EKG tracings, I, I believe, in the house. Um, such, such an artist. Such the artist. Yeah, well, your, your mileage may vary. <laughs> That's right. Objects in the mirror may appear closer than they. But, uh, right. Bob, do you got another one for us as we're getting up there in time? Sure. We'll do one more uh, airway management. So a patient has a, uh, we'll say they're having a stroke and they have, uh, it's a hemorrhagic stroke with clenched teeth, and they're on the second floor of her residence. Uh, when when do you say uh, how much how, how much airway management in the house is sort of good enough to get them to the truck before you might want to do something more definitive? Right or, there. Go ahead, Kelly. Go ahead. Right there. I mean, right there. if you're okay. telling me a patient with a patient's got a bleed and they're trismic and they're already uh, having respiratory compromise, and I'm upstairs in a house, well. How how long is the patient going to go without ventilation, um, uh, or or inadequate ventilation while we're trying to to you know uh, I'm trying to do the PG thirteen version of this uh, <laughs> where we're trying to halfway it uh, as we're extricating her down a couple of flights of stairs um, if need be she's going to get her advanced airway management uh, and get her airway secured before we even leave the place we found her. Um, and if that means that someone has to walk behind me um, and, and trail an oxygen bottle and gently squeeze an Ambu bag as we go down the stairs, uh, well, then that's what we do. But 
um, that particular patient, yeah, she's going to get her ALS airway management before we go downstairs. Well, for me, the first thing I want to do is probably give as much aspirin as I can. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, just joking. Just, just grind it up in the clenched teeth. That's right. But, um, you know, I'm with you 100%, Kelly. I mean, this is somebody that doesn't have a secured airway. And, you know, by, you know, someone that has a bleed, they've got to get to a surgeon. But the challenges are now, if we don't have a patent airway, we don't have a patient. And we've got to be able to ensure that we are keeping the airway uh, open, the patent, and uh, they're able to exchange. And if they're clenched, um, there's some challenges. And we've got to be able to ensure that we're taking care of that patient before we make any movement. Again, um, bleed's not going to fix itself. You know, we've got to go ahead and get them to the hospital so they can get in front of a, uh, a neurosurgeon and get that fixed. But uh, I'm going to be worried about that airway. And if I don't have a good viable airway... Um, I'm not going to be moving that patient right away. Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of the same same uh, philosophy that, that a flight medic would have in that regard. You know, let's get the airway now while we have the room to get it and, and we have the, the personnel and the, and the uh, wherewithal to, to adequately secure an airway rather than try to do an uh, ad hoc when we're en route to the hospital in, in suboptimal environment. Yeah. So... You know, one of the questions that I have, Bob, for you is, mm -hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, because something you said in the beginning uh, kind of resonated with me, and it keeps coming back to me, is that you mentioned that when they get out, when your students get out to the field, they talk to the preceptors, and you say, and they say, what do you want done in the house? Should I start an IV in the house? Should I do? Isn't it, and this may be different from state to state, and Kelly, you do a lot of uh, initial education as well. Mm-hmm. As the, as the paramedic, am I asking the preceptor what they want me to do, or aren't they giving me the opportunity to develop my skills and, and work with the patient as I think I would work with them on, uh, on a live truck and then grade me on that? I mean, because I've done it both ways, but I've gotten the most success when the students go in and say, this is how I would run this call. And the preceptors are saying, well, you wouldn't want to consider that because, or you were spot on. Um, how does that work for y'all? Well, in my practice as a paramedic, it, it kind of depended. And I, I worked in three states. I've had a, a bunch of different uh, sort of philosophies. And each um, service sort of has its own local uh, tradition, I guess. And so I would have some supervisors as a, I would get a chart QA'd maybe. Well, why did it take you 10 minutes to give a chest pain patient nitro? Like, well, I moved him to the truck. And they go, well, you should have done that in the house before moving him. If they need a nitro, they need it now. And, you know, so it, it's just, um, there is some variability. Um, we have a state system here uh, that, that does, that does, we're all in the CARES, uh, well, two of the counties at least are in the CARES registry. And they, there's a state report that tracks clinical performance for, for different conditions. Uh, but there is some individual um, preference for, you know, how much do you want done in the house? And then sometimes uh, as much simulation as we do, like you said, it's going to be different if you're at a bus stop compared to an apartment building. And then sometimes and the students don't really appreciate that as much until they actually get out in the field. And, and so that's where the preceptors do the teaching. And, and then, you know, I, and I say there's different opinions about there's more than one right way. And just ask what your preceptors is, and uh, and sort of develop them, compare what they say, and, and keep reading, and keep following the science, right. and, uh, yeah. and develop your own after after you you finish. Kelly, what do you well, think? 
you know, well, as a, as a preceptor, uh, what I expect from, from a uh, student is, is going to largely depend on what, uh, what part of their, uh, or what uh, level they are in their, their educational program. You know, when, when we have, you know, typically EMT students are, are completed with their class, uh, uh, at least the didactic portion of their class. So they're starting to hopefully start to put everything all together um, by the time they reach uh, the clinical stage. Those guys, uh, at least for the EMT students, uh, I expect them to, to uh, watch a couple of calls uh, and get their feet under them and, and then uh, function as a team member. Uh, do the same things that, that my partner would be doing, watch what they do, uh, and jump right in. And, and because, you know, on an EMT slash paramedic crew configuration, that, that's what the EMT is doing. He is not running the call, uh, but he is, uh, should be able to, to function as a autonomous team member without a, without a, a whole lot of direction right. and, uh, and supervision. Now, as far as paramedics go, it depends on what part of your, your clinical rotations you're in. If you're in those, those graduated clinical rotations where, you know, you're, you're clear to do uh, ABC, uh, you know, or ABCD um, treatments, you know, you're cleared for these drugs and this procedure and that sort of thing, you're still in that skills acquisition uh, and skills monitoring phase your your clinicals. Uh, I expect them to be competent uh, at performing those particular skills, but I don't really ask them to do anything more than than be a uh, a team member that that EMT that that EMT student would be. Except the the skills they're actually performing or the role they're actually performing happens to be an ALS skill. Now, if they're in their field internship phase and those final 50 patient contacts or so, or, or whatever your program requires, um, before you can graduate the program, uh, they're expected to run the call. Uh, I will stand back and, I, and I'll make it clear from the very beginning, hey, if you want to watch one and, and see what my personal style is, go ahead. Um, and, and then after that, uh, I just expect us to see you make decisions and run the call. Now. If your decision making is is improper, uh, and it would impact patient care, I may gently interrupt you and suggest a better way. Uh, I'm not going to correct you in public, um, but I'm going to uh, suggest a better way and take those suggestions for what they are. They are a correction, uh, not a. Uh, they're a correction. They're not a suggestion. I may right. couch it as a suggestion, but they are a correction, and you should heed it. Right. Um, and we'll talk about why later. Um, and, but, those are things, and those are things that you set up before that situation. That's arises. right. That's yeah. right. You have that talk before you. Before Let me ask you, you this, Kelly. Patient contact. You know, you, you have good standards, and you talked about changing the standards based on what part of the training they're in. Do you change your standards based on what paramedic program they're coming from, too? No. No. I well, don't. that's that's uh, very refreshing to hear. Because a lot of times you're going to hear, well, they came from XYZ. They, they, those guys know what they're doing. Other times you hear, oh, they're at this program, and you got to kind of watch them a little bit closer. I think you, I think you, you should apply the same standards uh, no matter what program they graduate from. And if, and if one particular program's grad, uh, graduates and students can't meet that standard, well, then that's something you need to identify, and, and that's something you need to, to get with the program on. Hey, right. your guys are, are not up to snuff. We're not going to lower our test, our expectations. Uh, you need to, you need to uh, raise your standards, you know, raise your standards right. to meet ours, not the other way around. Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And there's a lot of preceptors that take that, you know, don't sell yourself short 
on who you are as a preceptor, who you are as a teacher. You treat everybody the same, and no one's going to be able to say that you have a bias. But as soon as you now start to, to change your expectations based on a program, uh, you've now, um, I think you've diminished a little bit of who you are as a preceptor. But Bob Sullivan, i got to tell you, man, what, a, what an awesome uh, show this was, and, and kind of to see a, a little bit different how Kelly and I would handle calls. And, uh, you know, it kind of fell in, in great lines of uh, we were on, online with a couple things. We were off on a couple of things. But uh, it was really interesting, man. So thanks for reaching out and asking to do this. And I know you have more questions for us, and we're going to have you back on another show and do it again. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I, I can't wait to come back. Yep. Welcome. Yeah. It was a welcome change of pace, uh, Bob. I, uh, um, nice to hear someone uh, with some, some clinical acumen uh, besides Sebolero. Uh, oh, my goodness. Listen to, man, it, sometimes it just, uh, I, I need a drool bib after talking to him for, for 45 <laughs> minutes. Well, thank, thanks for letting me <laughs> what, a, what a douche. <laughs> All right, so anyway, Kelly, but there is, you know, one of the things that I want to bring up before I hand it over to you for the closing is we do this show for the people who are listening and bob's one of the guys who were out there who said hey i'd really want to know how you guys would handle these situations so rather than just send them to us we asked bob ems1 columnist to come on and and help us out do the show and and i think what we want to be able to say to everybody listening is we want to listen to your ideas. We, we want to do shows that you want to hear and not what we think you want to hear. And, and we encourage everybody to uh, you know get in touch with us and let us know what you want us to debate, talk about, to argue about, to whatever it is. And, and I, I think we're up for doing it. Right, Kelly? Exactly. This is your podcast. Chris and I are just the talking heads that happen to be uh, on every week. Uh, but but we want to know what you think. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, if you if you have ideas, uh, if you have questions you'd like to pose to us, um, you can be on the podcast. All you got to do is contact us and, and let us know a good time for you to record. Um, but for myself, co-host Chris Ceballero, and our guest this week, Bob Sullivan of EMS from the Patient's Perspective, this is Kelly Grayson, and thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.